0: Father God, we give you thanks for this time where we could gather together and we can contemplate the teaching of your word. We pray that as we do so uh, that you would plow the fallow ground of our hearts and that you would plant your uh, word deeply within and that you would uh, pour your spirit out upon our lives, that we would produce uh, the fruit of your spirit uh, 30, 60, and 100 fold. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, aside from the fact that some of you are way back there, I promise I don't bite, uh, maybe just my children occasionally, Uh, but if you want, you can move closer. If not, that's all right. I don't want to make it uncomfortable. (laughs) But anyway, what what I'd like us to discuss this morning is um, a particular interesting event that occurred at the Synod of Dort. Uh, so, obviously, this is a church that is committed to the three forms of unity, Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, and the Belgic Confession. And so I want to talk about uh, an event that occurred at the Synod of Dort where two delegates became engaged in a heated debate, a heated debate. And it, it almost, it ended with, or at least the, the, the penultimate event before it ended was a challenge of a duel to the death, okay? So I wanna talk about this, and I wanna talk about this particularly in terms of not only looking at the event itself, but then I wanna talk about the broader question of how the church has to exist in the world but always has to be cautious not to let the world press the church into its mold. You know, you know, the, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed according to the renewing of your minds. That, we could say, will be the theme verse, if you will, of this particular uh, time that we have together as we reflect upon these events at the Synod of Dort. So first of all, what I want us to do is we'll look at a brief biographical sketch of one of the delegates to the Synod of Dort, a gentleman by the name of Franciscus Gomaras. Maybe you've heard the name. I don't know. But Franciscus Gomaris. I want us to understand a little bit about who this man was uh, so that we maybe have a little bit of sympathy for him. Not, we're not going to forgive his sin uh, or overlook it, I should say, but we want to have some sympathy for him. Then I want us, secondly, to look at the event itself. What, what exactly led up to this event where you have one man challenging a minister of the gospel, challenging another minister of the gospel to a duel to the death? I mean, it sounds kind of crazy, uh, you know. Thirdly, briefly, we're going to look at the ethics of duels, okay, because I think we look at this event, and we think, how crazy, how uh, scandalous is this that uh, one minister would want to kill another minister? And I want us to understand that on the one hand, it was quite commonplace. It's quite commonplace in the 17th century. But that doesn't mean that it was right. You know, how often do many of our own practices these days, we have in our culture where it's lawful and it's legal to do certain things, but that doesn't mean that it's righteous? or that it's pleasing to God. So the culture may say one thing, the laws of the state and the government may say one thing, but the Bible says another. And then uh, finally, we'll reflect upon some some practical observations, some scriptural reflection upon uh, this event and how we can uh, you know, be on guard against this type of thing unfolding in our own lives. So first, let, let's look at a brief sketch of Franciscus Gumaris. He has gone down in church history famously because he was one of the first to sound the alarm on the teaching of Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius came onto faculty at the University of Leiden, where Gomarus was a professor, and he began to be suspicious of Arminius because he wasn't quite lining up doctrinally uh, where uh, the university was. Because the university particularly used at this time the Belgic Confession uh, and the Heidelberg Catechism. Now. Uh, I think that a lot of Gomorrah's personality was shaped by who he was as an individual. And oftentimes who we are as individuals is, is determined by uh, our life experience. You know, there's the question of nature versus nurture. Uh, does, do the events in our life make us who we are or do they reveal who we are? Maybe a little bit of both. But in this particular case, Franciscus Gumaris lived in a a place which is now in Belgium. And at this particular point in in world history, the Roman Catholic power of Spain had invaded the area uh, and were openly persecuting Protestants, sometimes imprisoning them, sometimes depriving people of their uh, household goods and their property, or even killing them. And so when Gomorrah and his family, as a child, uh, professed reformed convictions, they immediately had to flee this part of Belgium because of the Spanish occupation uh, that was there. So here, theological convictions for him was not something that we would say was a passing thing. He paid for it uh, in the events of his life. It's not like you go down here to the Starbucks, you meet up with a Roman Catholic, you have a chat, and then you're like, oh, okay, well, that was an interesting conversation. I hope you do well. See you later. No, it, those types of interactions often led to, okay, now you're going to jail, uh, or now we're going to persecute you. Now you're going to die. Um, he was an intelligent uh, young man, although perhaps this is maybe common for the time. He learned Latin and Greek by the time he was 14. Uh, So he had, you know, proficiency in these things. He studied at Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, He left England after his education and studied in a number of places, one of which was Heidelberg, where he studied with Zacharias Ursinus, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, But he eventually became a theology professor at uh, the University of Leiden and uh, subsequently left there after the Arminius controversy, but eventually was a, de- a delegate to the Synod of Dort. Now, personality-wise, he was known for his propensity to want to mix it up. He kind of had a combative spirit. His brother-in-law wrote this, these, these following words. So this is family, at least by marriage. The man pleases himself most wonderfully by his own remarks. (laughs) Uh, He derives all his stock of knowledge from others. He brings forward nothing of his own, or if at any time he varies from this usual practice, he is exceedingly infelicitous in those occasional changes. So, in other words, he, you know, in technical theological terms, he was a jerk. and if his brother-in-law is saying this about him, you've got to know that, well, not even family can cut him some slack here. Um, but uh, even that being said, uh, he was pretty polite with the Arminians, or at least the quote-unquote the less obstinate Arminians at the Synod of Dort. He wanted to let the Synod let them speak and, and, and other things. So he was born... in a a fiery context where reformed people suffered for their convictions. He was a bit argumentative uh, and a bit kind of pompous. All right, so that sets a little bit of the stage there. Now, this brings us secondly to the incident itself. Now, we know of this particular incident because there was an observer at the Synod of Dort who was writing regular letters recounting of the day's events to the British ambassador. Uh, The Synod of Dort was an international meeting where you had not only theologians and pastors from all of the Dutch provinces, but you had representatives from Geneva, uh, from from Germany, uh, from England. And so the delegation of theologians that King James, famous from the King James Bible, he sent a delegation there, and he also had his English ambassador that was there in the Netherlands. And so uh, there was a gentleman writing letters daily reporting of the events that happened. And so it so happened that uh, the delegation, or I'm sorry, that the synod that evening was debating a rather thorny issue related to the doctrine of predestination and the particular question of Christ's precise relationship to the decree. Is he merely the one that executes it as the God-man or is he in some sense foundational to it? The Arminians took one view, uh, the reform took another view. And we don't necessarily have to get into the details of that matter other than to say Gomorrah stated his opinion. He stated his opinion. And then another theologian by the name of Matthew Martinius, or uh, Matthew Martin, or Matthi- uh, Matthias Marti- Martinius, Matthew Martin stood up and he disagreed and he stated a slightly different opinion. And at this, Gomaris was angered because in this particular context, to disagree with someone was not necessarily just an exchange of opinions. Oh, that's interesting that you hold that view. Rather, it could be taken as a personal insult. How dare you disagree with me, okay? And so here we have the following passage. We have the following passage from one of these letters. That gives us a first hand account of the event. Gomarus, who owes the Synod a shrewd turn, and then I fear me, began to come out of debt. Presently, as so, in other words, he was doing well, but presently, as soon as Martinius had spoken, starts up and tells the Synod, Ego hank rem en me recipio, I take this charge to myself. In other words, how dare you! Insult me. And therewithal casts his glove. So he dropped the glove. In that day, to drop the glove was, I challenge you to a duel. And it says, and challenges Martinius with this proverb, eke rodem, eke saltum, Here is your test. Show yourself courageous. In other words, oh, you think you're so smart by disagreeing with me? Let's take this test how about if I challenge you to a duel? Let's see how tough you are now, smart guy. But you kind of think, gee whiz, is this, is this a church meeting? Or is this, is this a barroom fight? Maybe a little bit of both. Um, and he says, and requires the synod to grant them a duel. Adding that he knew Martinius could say nothing in refutation of that doctrine. So he asked the synod, he drops the glove, and he says, I ask the synod to grant me a duel with this minister. So he was so upset and so offended that he was willing to risk a duel to the death. That's how you fought these things, duel to the death. Now, whether or not it was with pistols or with swords, rapiers, we don't know. Both were used at the time. Um, I kid you not. 18th century German theological students preferred uh, pistols uh, to swords because they could more easily hide a bullet wound uh, beneath their clothing than they could, say, a slash to the face. (laughs) I kid you not. To research this stuff, I read a pile of books on dueling, and it was one of the most fascinating things that I've ever studied. It was really entertaining in that respect so do you know duel with pistols or with swords we don't know nevertheless gomaras wanted to kill him and he was angry the synod basically said no 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 we're not going to have any duels <laughs> not on the docket today we're not going to do that and they said let's close the evening's business with prayer and so you'd think all right well that settles it right not quite The letter goes on, zeal and devotion had not so well allayed Gomarus his choler. In another word for anger. In fact, you get the word, he's choleric, you know, the personality test. Uh, But immediately after prayers, he renewed his challenge and required combat with Martinius again. But they parted that night without blows. So, you know, imagine the scene here. Let's pray, O Lord, You know, forgive us of our sins, we love you, we praise you, thank you for a good evening, and that there was no bloodshed, amen, I challenge you again. He's like, he's still, you know, so you know what that means, don't you? It means he ain't praying, (laughs) he's sitting there and he's angry, he's seething in the middle of that prayer, he's not really praying, he's just, you know, filled with anger or as we might say in my household, he's just filled with the devil, okay? All right. Now, blessedly, the English delegation that evening went and visited the both parties, and uh, I think they were able to calm everybody down. And from that point forward, you have Gomarus who behaved himself decently. That's not to say that he wasn't a jerk, but at least he didn't challenge anybody to any more duels, okay? So praise God, because at least now... Now we can know that we can know the Synod of Dort for their doctrine and not for the fact that, hey, two of the ministers killed each other in a duel. And in fact, when I first encountered this event, um, as I was researching my doctoral dissertation more than two decades ago, I left this out of my dissertation because I thought, I don't want this guy's opinions to be clouded. I want people to evaluate them fairly for their theological uh, accuracy or inaccuracy, not because they said, I'm not going to listen to this guy. He's a jerk. He he wanted to kill somebody. Uh, But I finally got around to researching this because I wanted to write this up. All right. So this brings us now to a third point. How is it? that you could get two ministers of the gospel, or at least one of them, anyway. I would have loved to see Martinius. You know, was he like, you know, oh my word, I can't believe he's doing that? Or was he saying, yeah, come on, (laughs) give me what you got. Um, So how is it that they could come to this point where it was okay, at least in some sense, culturally perhaps, um, you know, how is it acceptable for one minister to threaten to kill another minister? You know, I mean, maybe you've had, you know, ministers and elders at synods and, and whatnot, or at classes meetings where they get angry at each other, but I doubt very much that they've ever gotten to the point where they're ready to kill them. I hope not anyway. But here's where we have to understand three particular points about 17th century history at this point. First are the political and theological stakes. This is a point in history where theology and politics uh, were thoroughly intertwined. There was almost no separating them. And the way that I like to say it is that theologians wrote checks cashed in blood. This is literally months before the Thirty Years' War. Months before the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War was fought on confessional lines. Roman Catholic armies against Protestant armies. And the brutality was unspeakable <coughs> on both sides. It was a tragic event. Uh, and in fact, it was not until World War I that you had a bloodier conflict. Up until that point in history, and up until World War I, the Thirty Years War, was the bloodiest conflict in world history with more than eight million people killed. Soldiers, civilians, women, children, old men, old women, it doesn't matter. It was just brutal. And in fact, in some German towns, they they, they talked about, or essentially a third or more of the entire German population was wiped out. They would have entire villages that were destroyed. There's a song that we're singing this evening, and now thank we all our God, that was written by a German pastor uh, and it was written on the heels of the Thirty Years' War, where he lost 75% of his congregation. He had about 1,000 in his congregation, and by the end of the Thirty Years' War, it had dwindled down to about 200, all of them killed in the war, families, men, women, children. So it was brutal. So in this sense, you've got to recognize that this is just a different period in life, uh, in the history of the world. King James, this is a time when kings were interested in the outcome of church meetings like this. So King James sent his delegation to the Synod of Dort. Remember, Gomarus had to flee for his life because of Roman Catholic persecution. Moreover, on the heels of the Synod, it sparked executions. People were executed for their theological beliefs as well as imprisonments. And then Arminian pastors were deprived of their pastorates under penalty of fine and imprisonment. Now, it would be one thing today where we would say, well, we're not going to call an Arminian pastor, but we would not say we're going to fine you or we're going to imprison you. But that's the way it was in the 17th century. Secondly, the commonality of dueling. Dueling is another name for what you could say is trial by combat. In other words, if you had a dispute with someone going all the way back to the days of Augustine, you could resolve the situation by trial, by combat. In other words, instead of going to a judge, you're going to say, we're going to go to the Lord and we're going to fight each other. And the one who walks away is the one who was right. Augustine, uh, this is a saying attributed to Augustine. During the combat, God awaits, the heavens open, and he defends the party who he sees is right. And one of the passages of Scripture to which they would appeal, what do you think would be? Any ideas come to mind? Not an eye for an eye. David and, David and Goliath. They would appeal to David and Goliath and said, see, look, David dueled Goliath and David walked away. The ungodly Goliath didn't. And I say, yeah, but what happens if the other guy's a better shot and you can't hit the broad side of a barn? In fact, there's a hilarious tale that I read about Mark Twain, when Mark Twain uh, had perhaps a little bit too much to drink. And um, keep in mind, dueling went all the way up until the 19th century, the middle of the 19th century, even the late 19th century here in this country. And so Twain challenged a man to a duel. And so he got his pistol and went off to practice, and Twain couldn't hit the broadside of the barn. He, could, he was just a horrible shot, and his friend also known as his second, you know, you had your second or your assistant, the one who carried your pistol and, you know, made sure everything was done fairly, what have you, he heard the other man approaching. And so he thought, Mark Twain, he's going to, my friend is going to get killed. And so he quick grabbed the pistol and shot a rabbit that he saw. And then as the man walked up and he said, look, here's the rabbit that Mr. Twain killed. He did it from a great distance. He's an excellent shot. The other man got scared and ran away. (laughs) Sounds just like a Mark Twain story, you know, if you ask me. Maybe there's a little bit of fiction involved in that. But it was very common. It was very, dueling was an ordinary part of life. In France, in 16th century France, there was a 20-year period where there were some 10, 1000 deaths to dueling alone. 10,000 men died in duels over in over a two decade period, which breaks down to which my math is not that good. So don't 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 uh, judge me on the accuracy of these numbers. But that would amount to about 500 duels a year, which means that there were nearly 10 deaths per week for two decades straight because of dueling. Why is this the case, why was it common? Well, you could argue that, well, it was kind of a brutal time in history, and perhaps it was, although we can look around in our own time and and note the, the, the brutality of the time. But it's in particular here, Sir Walter Raleigh said this, to give the lie deserves no less than stabbing. In other words, you lie about my character, and that is essentially a capital offense. How dare you demean my character? In William Shakespeare's Othello, Iago, who's also the name of the bird in Aladdin, the Disney cartoon, nevertheless, Iago says this in, in his play, and this kind of gives us something of the nature of why men would be willing to risk their lives. Uh, although, I have to note, there was, they allowed women to duel, and there was one form of dueling, and it was in Hungary, where they would bury the man, if it was a man versus a woman, they would bury the man waist-deep in dirt to to even out the odds between the man and the woman so that the woman could then run up and whack him over the head and get away without necessarily, you know, uh, getting grabbed. It's a strange thing. Anyway, Shakespeare says this, "'Good name in a man and a woman, dear my Lord, "'is the immediate jewel of their souls. "'Who steals my purse steals trash.'" Tis something, nothing, t'was mine. Tis his and has been a slave to thousands. But he who filches my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. You can have my purse. You can have my money. It's trash. But you impugn my name. You take away my character. You take away my reputation. It doesn't enrich you. It impoverishes me. And so to do that, was, it, was, it, was just, it was tantamount to destroying a person's reputation. And so thus, all that was necessary, all that was necessary was for Gomorrah to think that you have impugned my reputation. And so it warranted the call for the duel. Now, duels could happen for far less. In this one account, I was reading of two... Um, American cavalry soldiers in the in the uh, in the West, say around the eighteen fifties, uh, maybe no the eighteen seventies or so, and um, they one was sitting down in the in the mess hall, and the other walked in, and he said, uh, two officers, mind you, so not just brawlers or anything like that, but supposedly gentlemen," and he says, "Our regiment has the finest beer in the army," and the other officer said. I beg to differ. I think that our regiment has the finest beer in the army. Are you calling me a liar? Ten minutes later, one of them was dead. That's that's how simple it was to get involved in something like this. So it wasn't necessarily for a serious insult, but it could also be something of just a minor insult. And in fact, as, as you think about David's encounter with Nabal, it makes you think that there might have been something of this going on. Now, David was warranted for being upset and God, but God vindicated him, but David was willing to take matters into his own hands. Now, just because duels were quite common in this period, doesn't mean that everybody thought that they were okay. And I won't won't go into all of the details But in the three men, three theologians that I found who had critical remarks about duels, interestingly enough, all three of them were present at the Synod of Dort. William Ames, Joseph Hall, and John Davenant are the three men that I found that wrote something about dueling, which I thought was really interesting because I couldn't find it really in anywhere else. But John Davenant, who was part of the English delegation, part of the English delegation, he was writing his commentary in Colossians 3.13, which says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So in writing about this, he has a, a couple of pages on the sinfulness of dueling. Which I find to be really fascinating because it makes me think that uh, he, uh, you know, the, the passage doesn't talk about dueling. So I think he was concerned about it, perhaps because it was quite common in his day, or perhaps because even though his commentary was written some 20 years after the events of the Synod of Dort, that whole event was still fresh upon his mind. And I suspect that he thought that it was scandalous that a minister of the gospel would threaten to kill another minister of the gospel all over a theological dispute. And so in his his commentary on this, he brings up four points, four points, uh, as well as some other points. First of all, he says, we have to be keenly aware of the degree of our own sin and conversely of the depth of the forgiveness that we receive from Christ. These are themes, I think, that resonate very well with this morning's message. You know, if we recognize that we are that sinful person, that fool in Psalm 53, then I suspect that we're going to be very uh, reluctant to want to demand vengeance or justice against somebody who wrongs us for something far less. In other words, if we contemplate the depths of the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus, that really should shape a lot about our conduct. Secondly... One unwilling to forgive hasn't received Christ's forgiveness, he says. If we are stingy, if we are unwilling to forgive others, then we genuinely have to ask the question, have we truly received Christ's forgiveness? Because one who has been forgiven of much should be willing to forgive of much. Third, he says Christians vainly excuse their own vengeful malice. He says, plain and simple, this is just vengeance. And according to Romans 12, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So he says, that's a third reason. And then, fourth, he says this, and I'll quote this. It's worth quoting. He says, It's therefore a diabolical opinion which has possessed the minds of almost all those who lay claim to gentility that they cannot bear even a reproachful word without the loss of their honor and their reputation, but are under the necessity of seeking revenge in a duel at the manifest peril of their own lives and a plain attack upon the life of another. He says it's diabolical. You know, another way we would put it is it's demonic to think that you cannot bear the slightest reproach, the slightest poorly stated thing against you and your character and to think that it deserves immediate vengeance by striking the other person dead. Now, in his commentary, he appeals to pagan authorities. We won't go into those details other than to say, if these pagan philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle could recognize that you need not visit every reproach with vengeance then how much more what how much more should we expect out of christians those who have received the forgiveness of christ he says this for all of these reasons it appears clear that they are absolute madmen who follow the opinions of the man, renouncing the doctrine of Christ so that they may retain the name of gentlemen. They do not fear the title of homicide. And finally, so that they may avoid suspicion of false infamy, they leap into the very pit of hell itself. Thus, much of those virtues uh, of which we practice towards such persons as are hostile and injurious to us. In other words, you may be inflicting death upon the other person, but guess what? You're ultimately inflicting death upon yourself because this action is so ungodly. Now, here's one of the things, though, that I have to keep in mind, is that as we were looking at this, and this is as we're beginning to wind in and circle in on this question of, of, uh, you know, how does the world shape the church's practices? How does it shape our conduct, even perhaps indiscernibly so? Is that the Council of Trent the official Roman Catholic response to the Reformation, in 1563, issued a formal condemnation of dueling. It said that it was of Satan. And I think that's rightly so. They issued a formal condemnation of dueling. That's in 1563. Now, I'm going to pick on the Westminster divines at this point, because you could argue that the Synod of Dort didn't really have the venue theologically to denounce dueling because the canons of Dort were so narrowly drawn against the specific salvation questions that Arminius and the Arminians raised. But in the, in the Westminster larger catechism, it gives some of those massive answers, massive answers as to what constitutes a keeping of the law, what constitutes a violation of the law? So, for example, in the Seventh Commandment, it says the keeping of a stew is in violation of the, of, of the, the commandment against adultery. Does anybody know what a stew is? Kind of like soup. like soup. That would be a good guess. That would be a good guess. Like hungry man's stew. But a stew is a 17th century word for a brothel a house of prostitution. So they go into very detailed you know, discussions as to when you know, to violate the, the law of God and this commandment. If you keep a uh, brothel, that is wrong. And you think, really? You have to go to that great of length to explain that that's forbidden? <laughs> and there are a number of reasons behind that. But all of that is to say is they get very detailed. But when it comes to the commandment against killing, in the sixth commandment nothing about dueling and in fact when it comes to the ninth commandment in deception it says that we have the right to defend the honor of our good name and there were some Westminster divines who believed that dueling was a permissible legal way of resolving disputes so the lack of an explicit condemnation at the Westminster Assembly kind of makes me scratch my head and think, why did the Roman Catholics condemn it and the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists and the Independents at Westminster didn't? I think this is yet further evidence that in this particular way, uh, the church had allowed the world to shape some of its practice and some of its ethics, some of its ethical practices. So this brings us now to the the fourth and final point here in terms of the lesson, the lesson that we can learn from this. uh, uh, Nevertheless, let me make the comment that dueling was eventually uh, formally outlawed. There were some earlier pronouncements in the 16th century against it, but it wasn't officially and totally banned in England until uh, the, uh, the early 19th century. Dueling was not banned in this country until the late 19th century. Okay, so this is something that was a common practice not too long ago, not too long ago. So what is the lesson? Well, just because dueling was common doesn't mean that Gomarus's actions were godly. It's kind of like today. Uh, the state of California allows divorce for a host of reasons irreconcilable differences, all kinds of different things. But yet the Bible has a very limited set of reasons as to what, what permits somebody to be divorced. So in other words, just because the world standards say one thing, or just because the government allows one thing, doesn't mean that the scriptures do. And so in this case, I think we can say that Gomarus's actions were sinful, despite the legality of dueling. Secondly, I think we can say this, that dueling may be passé. In other words, okay, we don't see duels anymore, at least in this country. But pride, impatience, and anger still churn in the hearts of all of us. So the motives behind dueling have not gone away. And so this is where, first of all, I think we need to be constantly vigilant against our own sinful pride. You know, if you know that you're going to go into a context, well, let me back up and say this. I said, I meant what I said in the, mess, in the sermon, that when I look in the mirror in the morning, aside from seeing all my new wrinkles, um, is I recognize that I'm my own worst enemy. So generally speaking, I pray, Lord, please protect me from myself. Don't let me make foolish decisions. Don't let me make sinful decisions. Protect me. But that being said, I think that especially when we go into specific situations where we know that there might be the possibility of conflict, we need to spiritually and mentally prepare ourselves to hold our check in pride. You know, it's like one of the challenges of working on on the faculty at the seminary is that you have a dozen highly educated, godly, intelligent, theologically astute men in the room. And often it's the case that all 12 of of them think that they all know what needs to be done. But there are 12 different opinions in the room. (laughs) And I might exaggerate just a little. And in that context, one of the things I pray is I say, Lord, give me humility. Humility help me to recognize that my way might not be the only way, that my ideas might not be the only ones that need to be done. You know, you go into a church meeting, you go into a meeting at work, you sit down at the dinner table with your family, whatever the situation may be, you need to be vigilant against pride. But ultimately, I think what this calls for is that we continually have to ground our conduct in our union with Christ. Fully recognizing who we are apart from Christ, as we said, you know, as I said this morning in the message, but then recognizing that Christ is the ultimate source of our good conduct. In his comments, in his comments on on Colossians 3.3, John Davenant quoted a medieval theologian by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. And yes, it's where we get Saint Bernard, uh, you know, uh, for the dog name, but, but the theologian more importantly. And he says this. He's got a quotation that's worth reading in full. What have you to do with righteousness if you're ignorant of Christ, who is the righteousness of God? Where, I ask, is true prudence, except in the teaching of Christ, or true justice, if not from Christ's mercy, or true temperance, if not in Christ's life, or true strength, if not in Christ's passion. Only those can be called prudent, who are imbued with his teaching, only those who have, had, uh, who have had their sins pardoned through his mercy, only those who are temperate, who take pains to follow his way of life, only those who are courageous, who hold fast to the example of his patience when buffeted by sufferings. Vainly, therefore, will anyone strive to acquire the virtues if he thinks that they may be obtained from any other source other than the Lord of virtues, whose teaching is the seedbed of wisdom, whose mercy is the wellspring of justice, whose life is a mirror of patience, whose death is the badge of strength. How true. We can only find these virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, in Christ and in His Spirit. And so we got to cling fast to Christ. So we always have to keep the cross of Christ before us uh, to keep our pride in check and to keep us on the path of sanctification. And here's the real tragedy. Here's the real tragedy in Gomarus's challenge of a duel. Is that whenever we suffer, when we suffer an insult, when we suffer a wrong, when somebody mistreats us, and we react in anger, in hatred, God forbid, in violence, we squander a God-given opportunity To manifest the suffering and humility of Christ. To take the blow. And to recognize that it's it's something in God's hands to further conform us to the image of Christ. We squander it. We throw it away. And instead we try to latch on to vengeance or anger. I hope we wouldn't squander those God-given opportunities. So... That being said, let's always be cautious against the pride in our hearts and let's always pray that the Lord would hold us close so that when we do find ourselves in those circumstances where we might have those insults, where we might be persecuted, where people might ridicule us, we wouldn't respond in anger, but we would respond with the patience and love and humility of Christ so that the world would not conform us to its image that we would be transformed by the Word of God. We've got like five minutes. Does anybody have any questions? Yes? I think it's interesting that we're done with dueling, but on Facebook we can duel oh, yeah. and, and with an anonymous uh, mm-hmm. purpose and not... Absolutely. You know, in that sense, yeah, that we, when you look at Facebook, for example, often the words that it, we exchange with others on the, on, on the, you know, social media forums or what have you uh, can be just as destructive uh, as, you know, the bullets. That would be my take on it. And, you know, it can be just as destructive or perhaps more devastating to people. And we can hurt and wound people that way. And I think that's absolutely true. You know, in that, you know, you look at uh, you look at the comments or the threads on news articles or on the Facebook, and it's an intellectual and spiritual sewer. I mean, people so quickly get really nasty, uh, and that's why, for the most part, you know, especially in theological discussions. <laughs> Uh, It can get really ugly and nasty, so much so to the point where me personally, I'm not saying that if you comment on those things that it's bad, but I just try to stay away. I just don't comment because I think that, no, there's not enough of a filter there. I'm too quick and ready to type something, and it may be misunderstood, but maybe it won't be misunderstood. Maybe it'll be understood exactly how I mean it, and maybe I'm not responding in patience and love. Uh, so yeah, absolutely, I think that that's one of the ways in which the world right now is dramatically, dramatically shaping the church's conduct. And where I think that, it's, it's very strange too, I see is that, it's almost like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation. You can meet some of the nicest people, but then if you were to read their online comments, you'd think, holy cow, who is this person? Where is Susie? I, she was so nice. Why is she so nasty like this online? Um, yeah, it's just, it's just awful. Yeah. No, very good observation. Any other observations, questions, criticisms, gently stated in love? It's amazing. I mean, uh, just to repeat it, is that uh, John MacArthur was quoting C. Thomas More, who was, uh, you know, killed and persecuted, and yet he told his persecutors, I pray that you will be like the Apostle Paul and that you will repent and that I will see you in heaven. That's, you know, yeah, I mean, some of Christ's weightiest words, I think, I mean, obviously they're all important, but to me personally, that weigh on me most is when he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I think, oh, Lord, I don't, I, I can't do that. <laughs> so you're going to have to enable me to do that, enable me to forgive people. And, you know, for me, I think, you know, if you're looking for a contemporary, another contemporary example of that, it's, uh, you know, I think I mentioned this last time, as Rachel Denhollander, who was abused by uh, the gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser, And when she read her vic- victim impact statement in, in court, when she was allowed to testify, she held out the the, the olive branch of forgiveness, which is, uh, you know, that's only given by God's grace. You know, or the other significant event that comes to mind is, it was a number of years ago, and I'm remiss that I cannot remember specifically, about 10, 15 years ago, where there was an Amish schoolhouse shooting. And the parents of some of the, the, the children in that community reached out in love to the shooter's family and ministered to them because they knew that how devastated they were at their, one of one of the, you know their son doing this. I just can't fathom that, other than to say I pray that God by His grace would enable all of us to respond with that depth of forgiveness, and that it would be reflective of the, our own appreciation of the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. Some situations in life can be very difficult to forgive, and so we have to pray that Christ would enable us to do so and that we would not seek vengeance. Let's close in a very brief word of prayer. Father God, we give you thanks for the gospel of Christ and for the forgiveness of sins. We pray, O Lord, that as we journey in life and as you uh, bring difficult and trying circumstances our way, when others accuse us falsely, when others insult us, we pray, O Lord, that our, we would not r- recourse to uh, to violence, uh, to vengeance, to anger, to hatred, but rather you would always give us a disposition of willing and ready to, to forgive others, that we would be willing to extend that same grace that we have received to those who wrong us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Great. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. 're going to be here tonight, yeah. <laughs>